FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. Today's guest is Rob Nichols. Rob is the president and CEO of the American Bankers Association, which represents banks of all sizes and charters, and is the voice for the nation's 22.8 trillion banking industry. As always, guest bios are available on our website, financeandleadership.com. So Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tilsia. I'm excited to be here. I am thrilled to have you on the show also because as the president and CEO of the ABA, you cover so many different areas and you have your pulse on the things that are going on. And what I really would like to do is almost like start with a year in review and get your sense of all the various different things that have happened in 2021. And then maybe ask you to take a look at your crystal ball and have the listeners learn a little bit more about you. How does that sound? That sounds fantastic. Looking forward to it. Excellent. So why don't we start out with just the fact that, look, it's 2021 and we are still in the middle of COVID. Nonetheless, we've talked about the fact that the financial industry continues to grow and that it really came into this whole period being a source of strength. And I'm just curious about what are the things that you are seeing from your perspective in terms of how the financial industry has been able to handle this whole situation? Sure. Well, the sector has been, of course, hard at work trying to address all the areas of economic dislocation associated with a global pandemic. I don't know about you, Tilsia. I certainly didn't have COVID-19 on my bingo card going into 2020 and 2021. So it was a big curveball for everyone, for the government community, the public policy community, for the private sector community, for the financial sector. So you know, the health of the financial services sector, even through COVID, is still strong. Loan quality is strong. Bank reserves are way above where they were before the pandemic. Tier one risk capital ratio is strongest on record. And we also think that credit conditions will continue to improve. So when you look at just the underlying metrics of how the financial sector is doing, those metrics are absolutely solid and strong. You know, that said, there are still massive pockets of economic dislocation that exist in our economy that we're trying trying to address. So we're coming at this from a position of strength, as I've been fond of saying, the financial sector is part of the solution here during this pandemic, not part of the problem and really part of the solution. And that's been recognized in a bipartisan way. And the banking sector specifically, particularly through the CARES Act and the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, spent, I think, did an incredible job of helping, particularly the small business sector, weather a really challenging 2020 and a really challenging, in some cases, 2020. I'd like to talk a little bit about the role that technology has played also, because when you think about this pandemic happening in this era versus some other period of time, it's been really fascinating just how the banking sector has adopted digital solutions and just did not miss a beat. And I've seen surveys that talk about just how satisfied customers have been with the banking industry and the way that it's been able to respond. What additional thoughts do you have on that? 
Yeah, so I guess three points. One is the rapid convergence of banking and technology was certainly upon us before the pandemic, but COVID hastened it. I mean, totally hastened it. So for example, you were a bank and you had your digital, on your strategic plan, a digital transformation of some kind or to onboard additional digital tools. And you were going to do it over the next one to three years. Everyone just accelerated their strategic plan and moved everything up. So the convergence was already underway. We certainly saw it be accelerated. And I think what was interesting is you saw banks of all sizes and particularly community banks, who many of which may not have had a embraced a digital customer onboarding, and they all sure did. And in fact, there were community banks all across the country said, I'm, I'm not even sure that my existing customer and client base would use all these digital tools, but the economy just so dramatically changed and the labor force changed, everything changed and how people consume banking products dramatically changed over the last 18 months. And I've talked to bank CEO after bank CEO, women and men from all across the country said, gosh, I never thought my client or customer base were going to be digital users of our bank tools, but son of a gun, they sure are. So it basically accelerated kind of the digital strategy that all of the nation's banks did. And also we're spending a lot of time at ABA seeking out kind of the best in class fintech companies that want to partner with banks. And so it's all about the customer solution, Tilsia. And so what we're doing is, you know, our nation's largest banks don't need the help. They have their own big innovation labs and R&D budgets and really thoughtful people. But you've got another 4,000 banks and change who are really reliant on the ABA. And so we're spending a lot of time scouring the marketplace for technology companies that want to partner with banks. And what's exciting is that this is a big marketplace and there are tons of companies. And so we're helping create some of these marriage between fintech companies and banks. So it's really all about a partnership model and it's incredibly exciting. But yes, it's been any sort of bank digital strategic plan that might've been like a 2023, a 2024 or 2025 plan. It's all fully accelerated and happening now. That's so true. And, and I'm sure that there are many, many stories about that, those specific situations and specific examples. Uh, one thing I want to make sure I touch on is when you and I last spoke, and it was a while ago under different circumstances, we spent a lot of time talking about the administration and what was going to happen. It was November of 2020. And at that point, we knew it was a Biden administration. We weren't sure about what was going to happen in the Senate. And now we are almost a year into the Biden administration. I just want to get your thoughts on what has the impact been on the banking industry? So a year in, I'll give you I'll give you my observation. So a lot of alignment with the Biden administration on many things, on getting the economy going, addressing the economic dislocation from COVID, helping the small business sector, keeping people in their homes. So all of those things are areas where we're fully aligned. There's been one area of sharp disagreement, and that's been on the Build Back Better plan, the IRS reporting provision. That was one of the pay-fors in the plan that would force banks to share customer data with the IRS. That's one area where we're in non-alignment with the Biden administration. That was a really big one. And we spent weeks sharing our concerns with Congress. And right now, Congress is with us and that particular provision is not in the big bill. And so that was one area of disagreement. But there's been a lot of areas of alignment, again, around getting the economy going and forbearance around foreclosure and helping the small business sector. The other piece that's really interesting will be the introduction of the new regulatory leaders that the Biden administration is naming. We have one, Rohit Chopra, the new director of the CFPB, who's already made a number of statements that I am aligned with and I think are absolutely smart and thoughtful, particularly around non-bank lenders engaging in bank-like activity and ensuring that there's the right sort of consumer protections there. So he said, 
said a lot of things early in his tenure that I think are on point, in my opinion. Obviously, we're going to not agree on everything. I don't want to oversell that. But Director Chopra has said things that I think are very thoughtful in a number of areas. And then there's likely to be some new Fed governors that will see two new vice chair appointments. There's a vacancy as well. So the Fed's going to change here over the next year or so. And then there's been a lot of focus on the OCC nominee as well, whose personal story and journey, I think, is remarkable, powerful, incredibly interesting. Uh, She's very accomplished. Uh, Her personal story is dynamic and, again, heroic, being born in the Kazakh village, immigrating to the United States, ascending to the highest levels of academia. I think that's a wonderful story and journey. A number of her writings, however, around the banking sector and the future of the banking sector and bank regulation are areas where we have concerns that we've shared with Capitol Hill. But her personal story and journey is impressive and compelling and quite remarkable, in my opinion. So that'll be the interesting piece will be the personnel appointments that we'll see out of this administration over the next several months, particularly as it pertains to the banking sector. But again, been a lot of areas of alignment, but then that one area where we were just really different places around the IRS reporting provision. And we just thought that A, the IRS couldn't use all of that data and B, would really impact the bank customer client trust, which we think is is oh so important. So I'd like to talk a little bit about just the regulatory expectations going forward. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that just on the number of conversations that I've had with a number of individuals, there's definitely this view that we are entering a heightened regulatory environment. And I know we're still trying to figure out what that may mean and also who will be at the heads of some of the various different agencies. But we are seeing, you know, whether it's the AML Act of 2020 or comments that are made by the SEC about making compliance programs a priority or even things from the D that has a new cryptocurrency task force. I think you're starting to see the wheels in motion, right, for a heightened regulatory environment. What are your thoughts about that? I'll touch briefly on those, and then we can talk about other ones too. So FinCEN's going to be hard at work, that's for sure. They've got to develop this beneficial ownership registry. It's a big lift. It's important they do it right. I was at the Treasury for a number of years under a previous administration and worked very closely with FinCEN. They play a really important role, obviously, in our economy and in the financial system. They issued a notice in April, and we've commented on that. And they're reviewing all the comments that they got from all across the country and from all the different stakeholders. And we'll see a proposed rule there soon. But that beneficial ownership registry, I think, is important. They're also determined determining the priorities for combating money laundering and terrorist financing. They identified some of these priorities in June. A number of things that we're already doing as a banking sector, corruption, cybercrime, fraud. These are things we're very focused on. So we'll get some guidance from the prudential regulators about how these priorities should be handled by banks soon. The SEC has a new leader in town, the chair, Gary Gensler, and he has made a number of comments around crypto. So is the president's working group as well. And so I think particularly around the crypto space, you're seeing a lot of these new regulators raising their hand and saying, hey, guys, we have a lot of questions about this. So I think what's interesting, some of the initial comments that we've seen from the regulators are concerned that these new entities in the financial system, in some cases, that do bank-like things, either payments or lending or deposits, should be subject to the same sort of complementary supervision, right? If you're going to do bank-like things, again, payments, lending, deposits, you should be subject to some sort of level supervision because we need to ensure that safety and soundness and consumer protections are kind of static across the marketplace. So we've seen a lot of comments kind of embracing that first principle. We think those are sensible comments. 
a lot of why you're seeing these comments are also because the financial sector marketplace is changing and there's all these new market entrants that weren't around just a handful of years ago. And so the regulators are saying, hey guys, the US financial system is dynamic. It's the most dynamic on the planet. And that's great. It supports the world's largest economy. It's the cardiovascular system of the world's largest economy. But we need to make sure that the regulatory landscape keeps up with innovation. So we're pro-innovation. You know, We're not anti any of these new entities. We just want to make sure the supervisory architecture keeps pace. And these new leaders, Gary Gensler, for example, Mike Sue at the OCC, among others, are I think echoing that sentiment. And I did see the precedence working group report that came out and you know, it made the point, you know, when you look at stable coins, for example, yeah. and those who issue stable coins, that they need to be in a similar regulatory situation as banks are. It will be interesting to see as the comments come out and as that work progresses, where it is that they land on that. I want to make sure I touch on climate risk. Yes. Because when we think about climate risk and just banking supervision, it feels like the U.S. is a little bit lagging, especially when you compare us to Europe and what's taking place there from the standpoint of the European Central Bank and the supervisory expectations that they've rolled out. And so if you're an international bank, you're already dealing with that. And meanwhile, in the U.S., we're still trying to like figure a couple of things out. You know, where is it that the ABA stands in terms of looking at climate risk and what should the banking industry be looking at and thinking about? Like everyone else here in the United States, we recognize that we need to maintain a healthy, clean environment. And part of that is the acknowledgement that we're going to move towards a lower carbon economy as each year progresses. And so we think that's where we're all good environmental stewards, obviously. And you're right. The Eurozone, I think, is a little farther along in terms of their thinking around climate and climate risk. The OCC and the Fed of late have been really far more active in terms of organizing themselves to think about how do you supervise around climate risk? And so we've joined joined with a number of other financial sector trade groups in town, IIF, SIFMA, and others to embrace a series of principles to say, hey, we all understand where we need to go, the roadmap ahead towards a lower carbon economy, which we get. We just want to make sure that the transition occurs in a way that doesn't provide additional massive economic dislocation. And so for us, what we've said to the Fed and the OCC is, hey, we get where you're going, we understand, but we want to just be cautious that the 5,000 banks in the United States are not monolithic. You know, there's 5,000 really different banks, different charters, different sizes in different parts of the uh, country with different economies. So we've said, hey, when you think about it, you may have a global bank that has a global climate transition strategy from here to 2050, for example. And that bank's transition thinking might be different than, say, a community bank in an energy-dependent part of the United States. So as we think about the transition, let's think about the different types of banks and being proportional around transition, particularly in sectors that could be facing economic dislocation. So it's all about trying to get the transition to a lower carbon economy right. We don't want to do it in a way that harms private sector jobs, certainly, particularly in energy dependent parts of the country. So it's all about transition planning, in my opinion. That makes sense. And so Rob, I'm going to ask you a very broad but unfair question. As you look into your crystal ball for 2022, what do you see? I mean, I think that we're all hopeful that we won't be talking as much about COVID come 2022, but we're still somewhat trying to like, you know, see our way out of it. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about just the expectations for a heightened regulatory environment. There'll be some new senior leaders that will be involved in the Biden administration. But what do you expect to see as we go into 2022? 
I'm a bit of a glass half full guy, so I'll talk a little bit what I hope to see and then maybe how we get there. One, yes, totally about COVID. We'd love to see this to the extent we can in the rearview mirror. Obviously, we're going to be living with some degree of COVID for some amount of time. I think that's reasonably obvious. But as more people get vaccinated, as more people get boosters, as we learn more about how to control and to mitigate that, the more we can open our economy, the more we're free to go about our daily lives and I mean, I just think that will have a really positive upside for the American people who've lived a very unusual existence for 20 or so months. So our collective ability to mitigate and manage COVID risk the right way collectively for the 330 million Americans, I think is, is something I would hope that happens. And we're doing our best. Again, we just represent one sector, but nonetheless, a pretty big sector in our economy. And so we've talked to our members about that and the importance of all those risk mitigants that they can take, because I just think the more we all collectively work here, the faster we can possibly get out of this. So that's one. Two, the issue just around our whole nation's governance, it's been awfully polarized for a while. And I would love to see us go back to a little more good old fashioned legislating where the two parties work together. So I thought the bipartisan infrastructure framework, for example, which was a demonstration in bipartisan collaboration. We haven't seen a lot of that lately, and I really hope we see more of that going forward. And frankly, I think there's some areas, particularly in the banking sector, where that can be demonstrated. So the Safe Banking Act, for example, is a perfect issue to flag. It's a totally bipartisan area of banking policy. And this, of course, is addressing the inconsistency between state and federal law around cannabis. You know, you've got almost 40 states have legalized cannabis for either medicinal or recreational adult use. And yet banks are regulated federally, as you well know. And of course, it's still a controlled substance. So banks in these 40 or so states are caught in the middle between state and federal law. This passed the House by a huge bipartisan number this year in this Congress. And I think there's the possibility we can see that happening in the Senate. So I'd like to see governing be a little more bipartisan, a little less polarized would be a hope of mine for 2022. And I recognize some may say that's naive. There's a midterm election and heavens, aren't these aren't these things you know too political? Not necessarily. That Our nation's had moments of heightened political exchanges and moments where the, the two parties have been able to work together and solve problems. So I would hope that we see more of that in 2022. And then from a, a smaller, less big picture standpoint, you're right, you're going to have the Biden administration will at that point have probably all the new regulatory leaders in. And those are positions that are in for three, four, five years, roughly. And so at that point, we'll have some regulatory stability as well at the four agencies that we work so closely with. And I would expect there'd be probably a full complement of Fed governors next year. Right now, there is not, as you are aware. So I think we'd have a full Fed. I think it's important that we have uh, a Federal Reserve and the, all the governor positions filled. We haven't had that a lot over the last 20 years or so. So I think that's helpful, given the important role that the Fed plays. And one last thing you're telling me, I have the benefit of looking ahead that I think would be great next year is to start a dialogue with both parties, House and Senate and the administration around paying down our nation's long-term debt. So there's been so much talk about our short and medium-term inflationary prospects, and that's totally important. And I don't minimize any of the concern around inflation, but I would like there to be the same amount of concern around the amount of long-term debt we have. We have spent a lot of money as a nation over the last couple of years as a result of COVID, and our now economic annual output is about the same as the amount of debt we owe. And that puts us in the league with two other nations, kind of Greece and Japan. 
And when you have the same amount of debt that equals your annual economic output, that's kind of concerning. So I think we need to come up with a bipartisan, long-term, thoughtful strategy to begin to pay down our debt. We need a strategy to do that. And that's something that not a lot of folks in Washington are talking about right now, but I think is awfully important. So I'm going to put that on my list of things that I hope happens next year as well. You know, Rob, I, I appreciate those comments. I am hopeful as well. And I think that one of the things that I find really interesting, especially when I talk to a lot of clients, people in the banking industry, is that the key word that I wrote down and I underlined as you were talking was stability. Just having a sense of what can we expect? What are the rules of, of engagement? Because it's really difficult to keep going one way or the other. And people really just want that sense of stability is what I hear when I talk to clients and people in the banking industry. You're exactly right, Tosia. Markets crave stability and predictability. Those are two things that financial markets really like. And you know, right now we are kind of the global envy of the world, our financial system is. We want to maintain that. We want to preserve and protect that. And that's amongst the reasons why I would hope our governance would be a little less polarized and we come up with a way to tackle our long-term debt challenges. Sounds good. So now, Rob, what I'd like to do is to just spend a little bit of time talking about the leadership aspect. The name of this podcast is Finance and Leadership. And so for me, it's really important to make sure that people get to learn a little bit more about you. You were very humble earlier. It was not lost on me when you talked about the fact that you used to work for the U.S. Treasury Department, because I know from reading your bio that not only did you work there, but that you were the recipient of the Alexander Hamilton Award, which is the highest honor at the U.S. Department of Treasury. So I'm curious about your time there and the lessons learned, and how do you carry that forward in the work that you do as president and CEO of ABA? Well, I was incredibly privileged to work at the Treasury Department. I worked under both Bush administrations, H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. And in the George W. Bush administration, I was, to your point, an assistant U.S. Treasury Secretary. I was there kind of day one through almost five years. And the portfolio was really exciting. It was all the external outside audiences, consumer groups, K Street, Wall Street, governors, mayors. It was a kind of a, a very sizable portfolio. What was great about Treasury is you learn very quickly how wonderful the career civil servants at that department are. Uh, so there's just a handful of political appointees, the overwhelming staff, you know, 99% of the staff are career. These are some of the best and brightest minds, best and brightest women and men I've ever worked with. And they're so smart. And what's interesting about Treasury, Tilsia, is everything Treasury does touches the American people in one way, shape, or form. They may not know it, but the oversight around currency policy and issuing debt, obviously fiscal policy and taxes, sanctions, stopping the flow of money to terrorists and drug dealers and evildoers. I mean, just everything that department does impacts the American people. They may not know it, or they may only know about the tax piece, but the foreign exchange piece and the debt piece and the helping administer foreign aid to developing nations, there's just so much that the treasury does. And it was just an honor to work there alongside so many bright women and men that, that were the career civil servants. And it was that position that really helped provide for me an important lesson around the intersection of public policy and finance and banking. And it was that intersection of how when you get public policy right around the financial system. The financial system can deploy its remarkable power to improve the overall economic prospects of the nation. And it was those years there at Treasury were wonderful. I learned a lot and worked with some of the smartest and brightest women and men I ever have. So tell us a little bit about your leadership style, Rob. How would you describe it and has it changed over time? <laughs> 
I don't know if it's changed over time, but I'll tell you that the best answer I can give you to the style will be to cite a Tim McGraw song, Humble and Kind. That song, it's three and a half or four minutes, is a perfect, I think, template for how to be a good leader. I mean, life is full of prima donnas and a-holes and we just, there's no time for that in the marketplace. We spend a heck of a lot of time with our professional associates and colleagues and being nice and kind to one another, I think is incredibly important. There will always be rooms to disagree, but you do so without being disagreeable, which I think is incredibly important. That I think has stayed with me for some time. One of my first jobs was working alongside Andy Card, who was the deputy chief of staff in the first administration in the H.W. Bush administration under 41. And I worked for him for a couple of years in the West Wing and in another capacity or two. And that leadership style of kindness and humility that I saw firsthand in some of the most high pressure positions, you know, in the United States government, I think really put a kind of a stamp on my own approach towards management and leadership. And I credit him with a lot of how I operate in a leadership role and an office environment today. And so tell me a little bit about how do you think this whole period that we've gone through, thinking about COVID, working from home and dealing with all the logistics with your team. And by the way, I mean, I've had many interactions with your team and they are amazing, extremely responsive. And I'm curious about what have you learned from going through this period? We were fortunate. We had a great technology team and a support team. So we were able to do that pivot into working from home pretty easily. And I credit the wonderful staff at ABA for helping us with that transition. What we've done to try to keep the culture to see a cohesive, we've done kind of a weekly all staff Zoom, you know, the entire time. We just went to twice a month, but for well over a year, we were doing it once every Friday afternoon. I would start it and do some reports, and then I'd invite in a celebrity guest or two, and then I would just take questions. And it was like an all-staff town hall meeting to try to keep the connectivity, to keep the fellowship, and keep the warm feel, which was so important because everyone had a different COVID experience. You know, I had some millennials who were living alone in apartment buildings and not having that sort of day-to-day engagement with other people, that liaison, that interaction. And that was hard in one way, shape, or form. Then I'd have the opposite. I'd have parents of young kids, of babies and toddlers. They had a whole different COVID experience, never leaving their house. Then I had others who were caring for an elderly parent or some of that nature. So everyone had a different COVID experience. So we also, in addition to the great work of our, of our tech team, our HR team did a wonderful job. We have a fantastic leader of our HR department and her and her team have done a wonderful job of thinking about what are all the kind of the emotional, psychological and intellectual things that we could do to support our staff in a work from home footing. And so we did some really interesting things over the last 20 months to care for the mental well-being of our staff. Because again, everyone had a different COVID experience. Some were able to do the transition to work from home like that. And others found it a lot more difficult or had impediments for them to work from home. And so we had a good team. We spent a lot of time thinking about what are the particular needs of the labor force? How can we deliver on them? And how can we meet the, you know, meet the staff where they are? And it turned out pretty well. 
And I'll tell you that one thing for me that was pretty interesting, just because, you know, I came up as a banker and I used to be in a trading floor where I could touch the person who sat next to me. And if I'm calling their house late at night, this was back in the day before we even had cell phones. So I would actually be calling your home and your kids knew who I was. It's like, mom, Tilsius on the phone, right? And so it's been in a way really interesting to be on these Zoom calls and like see the family member who happens to walk by not realizing that somebody's on the phone or just see the random cat that jumps, you know, on top of somebody to just really get to see your coworkers in just a different setting. So that has been an interesting plus that I was not expecting. We've had every imaginable piece of Zoom buffoonery occur at the ABA since early March of 2020. So our planning is to return in January, but we're going to offer a tremendous amount of labor force flexibility in the form of flexible work arrangements. Most of our members are doing some sort of flexible work arrangement going forward. Probably not every member, but I would say the bulk of them are. We are no different. And I think we as a society and as a culture have learned that we can perform from home. Not every job can, of course, but many can. And so we're going to be mindful of these labor force trends and to make sure we're on the cutting edge so we can attract and retain and recruit kind of the best and brightest in the labor force here in the Washington, D.C., mid-Atlantic area. We want to bring the best in the doors here at ABA. And so we want to make sure we're offering some of those fantastic benefits that our future leaders of tomorrow are looking for. I think that's great. Now, as many of my listeners know, I believe that leaders are readers. And I was curious if there are any books you refer to often, recommend or give to other people. I've mentioned in other episodes that Barbarians at the Gate is still one of my favorite books of all time. I really enjoy that book. What would you put on your list? I love that book and I love reading, but one leadership kind of management book that I would encourage folks to read, it's not a brand new book. It's been around for a while. It's called Getting the Yes by Roger Fisher. This is one of my favorite management books. This is about an alternative to traditional adversarial bargaining. And this is basically the best tome about how to negotiate and how to reach fair agreements wisely, efficiently, effectively, and civilly. So Getting to Yes by Roger Fisher is kind of a must read, I think, for any up and coming leader in any office environment or any group or team environment, I guess I should say, because we're not all in an office. But that's a great book about how to negotiate and lead to win-win it's a very manageable length. Yes, I do remember reading that one and I remember it, it did have an impact. What are you passionate about nowadays, Rob? And mind you, it could be personal, professional. Just want to get a sense of how do you like to spend your time outside of work also? Uh, no. What are your passions? I have two things right now that I'm quite passionate about. And one is so we have two teenagers, Telsia. So we're getting the clock is ticking and we're going to be empty nesters not too long from now. So watching my kids sports. Nothing provides me more excitement and zeal and enthusiasm than watching my kids on the playing field, whatever it is, if it's the hockey field, lacrosse field, soccer field, tennis court, whatever it is, I just love watching them. My wife and I just love it. And our time to watch it is coming to an end here, sadly. So that's number one. And then number two, a more personal indulgence is I'm a big salmon fisherman. And once a year, my younger brother and I, he's a prosecuting attorney in Washington state and, you know, 3000 miles away, three time zones away in an incredibly busy job like the one I am as well. We don't get to see each other because of that gap in time, miles and hours between us. So once a year in October, we go salmon fishing for four days, which is awesome. And we're on a river, a salmon infested river on the upper Olympic Peninsula in Washington state by a tiny little 
town with 2,000 people called Forks, Washington, where the Twilight film series was set. And we go salmon fishing and like we don't have cell service half of the time when we're on the river. So you're really off grid. We get up crazy early and fish for 10 to 12 hours. And then we're off river by three in the afternoon, clean the fish, make a big bonfire and go to bed at like six or seven o'clock and wake (laughs) up and do it again the next day. And that's a wonderful battery recharge for me because there's nothing like catching one of these huge salmon and taking, you know, half an hour, sometimes as long as an hour to wrestle it to the boat. It's incredibly fun. So that's something my brother and I have been doing for years and years and years and plan to for years to come. It's incredibly fun. Sounds amazing. I have never gone fishing and definitely not salmon fishing. That sounds amazing. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So Rob, as we're nearing the end of our time here, is there anything that I have not covered that you would like to share? We've talked about some big existential foundational things, not only from a policy standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, and Tim McCraw being humble and kind, all that. But I'll tell you one little tiny other thing, perhaps for your listener, particularly the the up and coming managers, something that you can learn early in your management tenure. And that's how to run a good meeting. There are a lot of folks in this town who are incredibly smart, brilliant even, and they're the in-house expert on whatever their particular relevant domain is. But I think what be great is if early in your management years, learn how to run a good meeting. Is it a decisional meeting? Is it an information sharing meeting? Was an agenda provided in advance? Does everyone know exactly how long it's going to go? Does everyone know their roles, duties, obligations, and responsibilities in the meeting? And while that sounds awfully simple and pedestrian, there's plenty of meetings I've been to where people are like, what's the purpose of this meeting? I don't know. Like, how long is it going to go? And did you get an agenda? No, you know, life's too short. You know, if everyone could run a slightly better meeting or just learn some basic tenets, and principles. Everyone becomes more efficient and effective. People come better prepared. The meeting concludes faster, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm all about efficiencies and data, just being as effective as one can be. And that's one thing I've noticed along the way is there are some people who run really good meetings, Tilsia, and then there are others who could use a little bit of polish. A little bit. Rob, thank you so much for sharing that. Also, when you don't run an effective meeting, then people start to wonder, why am I here? And then they, right. they start looking for excuses. I actually know somebody who refuses to accept any invitation that doesn't have an agenda. Right. They just won't go because they feel like you don't really know exactly what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And so I think that is a great tip for those of us who are just getting started, for those of us who are in the middle, and for those of us who are at the end of our business career here. I think that's such a great insight. Just principles for meeting management. They're not overcomplicated. They're simple. But you'd be surprised how many meetings you get invited to when some of those basic principles don't occur. And then people are right, all looking around one another, like, what's going on? And what, why are we here? And who's running the show? And how long is it going to go? And all that stuff. You know, these are easy things to address. And so anyway, it's a tiny, tiny little uh, recommendation, tiny little piece of insight, but one that nonetheless can improve the lives of people in their workplaces. Excellent. Well, Rob Nichols, thank you for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And as always, I feel like every single time I have a conversation with you, we cover so much ground and there were so many pearls of wisdom in our conversation today. So thank you for your time. Well, you are incredibly kind and I really appreciate being included and invited and best of luck on future podcasts. Thank you so much. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.